This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Mowell, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Glenn C. Lowry is the Merton P. Stoll's Professor of the Social Sciences and Professor of Economics at Brown University. He earned his BA in Mathematics in Northwestern University, his PhD in Economics in the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. He's also served on the economics faculties of Harvard University and Boston University. Professor Lowry is a distinguished scholar of economics. He's a notable public intellectual in the United States, having published more than 200 essays in various academic outlets. He's also a proficient scholar on racial and social policy issues. He's written several books on the topic of race in America. I'm very much looking forward to this conversation today with Professor Glenn Lowry. Professor Glenn Lowry, welcome to Thinking in Public. Uh, very good to be with you, Dr. Moeller. You know, there's so many things I want to talk to you about, uh, some of them as current as uh, just about the headlines every day these days, and uh, and some of them in the, say, the mid-range. But I, I want to tell you that as we begin, I'm very indebted to you for a, a, a key intellectual concept that I use over and over again. I find it indispensable in thinking about, uh, for example, the uh, the relative uh, cultural position of, uh, of Christians in a society. And that's the concept of social capital. And uh, like I say, I come back to it again and again. T tell us about the development of social capital as a concept. Well, I was very fortunate. I was writing a dissertation at MIT, a graduate student in the 1970s. My uh, topic was, uh, well, it was uh, very similar to the headlines of the day about race mm -hmm. and racial inequality. Uh, but it was the 1970s and I was trying to think about, okay, we've had a civil rights movement and we have these equal opportunity laws mm -hmm. and so on, uh, but will we expect to see the uh, economic gap between black and white converge uh, under the uh, benefit of equal opportunity? And I thought there was reason to worry not. And that reason had to do with the way the communities were organized. So I developed a theory, a little theory, small t, mm -hmm of uh, human development uh, as an economist in which I incorporated into the way economists ordinarily think about human capital, skills and uh, education yeah. and work experience and so on. This idea of social effects, this idea that the neighborhood, the peer group, the household that you're raised in, uh, the community that you grow up in would also contribute to your human development. I called it social capital. I was very fortunate that uh, Robert Putnam, the political scientist, mm -hmm. the, the guy behind Bowling Alone, right. uh, uh, his most recent book, Our Kids, American Grace, he's writing a book about religion, Dr. Moeller. This is Bob yes. Putnam, Harvard political scientist. Uh, he embraced been a the guest concept on this program, and he gave me credit. I'm sorry, I didn't hear you. So he's been a guest on this program, by the way. Oh, he has been. Yes, yes. Very good, and it's entirely appropriate. Anyway, uh, he, he adopted the concept in his own work, and he credited me with having been a a uh, originator, uh, also yeah. the late sociologist James Coleman, James S. Coleman, now deceased, University of Chicago for many years, a great sociologist, uh, also cited my dissertation as a, you know, one of the originators of this idea. Uh, it's a commonplace phrase. I mean, it's natural enough. I don't want to get too much credit, but I don't mind that people associate my name with it. Well, it's extremely helpful to me in thinking about uh, in, in any individual or group in a society and, and uh, relative to the, to the rest of the society. So, for instance, I use yeah. it often 
in uh, dealing with the effects of secularization and the uh, the moral liberalization of a culture, just looking at uh, say the role of uh, of traditional Christians in society and our posture in the society, and, and uh, it's clear that throughout say most of the 20th century, people who joined our churches and identified with us actually gained social capital uh, by associating with us. Now, uh, holding yeah. to many, you know, beliefs that are outside the mainstream of the culture on sexuality and gender, any number of things means that uh, you, you lose social capital uh, by joining our churches. And, and, and look, that's, that's something that uh, that evangelicalism in the United States wasn't prepared for. You know, we, we, we kind of thought, and I'm speaking of this as a movement with a mind, but kind of thought that evangelicalism was moving into the accumulation of greater social capital in the, the last half of the 20th century, only to find out that uh, it's kind of being cashed out in the 21st century. Well, I, I guess it depends on how the currents of the larger culture mm -hmm. shift one way or the other mm -hmm. and where you are situated relative to that. Uh, but it may be that the quality of the bonds within the church are mm -hmm. uh, stronger and uh, quantity, quality, you know, it may be uh, right. the, the intensive connections right. between people are more valuable at the end of the day. Well, it's also a warning to us that we not see the essence of our mission as gaining social capital. That, you know, that just speaking as a theologian, that can be at the expense of the gospel. So, uh, but nonetheless, uh, I'm in, very indebted to you for that concept and, and find it that I have to use it every week, you know, in, in lectures and writing and, uh, and, and well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, I've been following your work for a very long time. And, uh, frankly, more, uh, in terms of uh, your definition of some of the most important issues of our day, then for, uh, you know, any expertise in the, uh, in the area of economics, which I find uh, fascinating from a Christian worldview perspective, but you, your work and, and, and your reputation, uh, has been expanded beyond what many people would think of, the, of as a, the field of classical economics uh, into, uh, well, the headlines. So, for instance, uh, I have benefited by your book written now almost 20 years ago, The Anatomy of Racial Inequality. And uh, one of the things I want to say is you're very careful in defining terms. Not, not every thinker or author is, is so careful. So when, when you wrote this book in the, the first part of the 21st century, you are defining the issues related to race uh, in a careful way that I, I wish you kind of delineate for us now. Oh, well, I appreciate that opportunity. Yeah, that uh, those were lectures I gave at Harvard uh, back in the year 2000. They were published in mm -hmm. 2002. Three lectures, uh, racial stereotypes, racial stigma, and racial justice. I wrote a uh, introductory chapter and a concluding chapter and put them together and put them out as mm -hmm. at the book. And I, I thought, I mean, you say careful definitions. Well, that's how they train us in graduate school in economics, you know. Mm -hmm. They train us with rigorous mathematical formulations of your concepts. Uh, economics underwent a transformation early in the 20th century. And one of my teachers, Paul Samuelson, the late great Paul Samuelson, was instrumental in fomenting this transformation where formal mathematical analysis was brought more to the forefront of economics. So in any case, I was trained to think carefully and precisely about the matters that I would address. And uh, with respect to race, of course, I can't recapitulate the entire argument of the book sure. or even do justice to it. But I did want to be clear about what we're talking about when we talk about race uh, and uh, settled upon uh, a conception that involves uh, two qualities of social uh, cognition, categorization and signification. I say race is embodied social signification. 
When we talk about race, we're saying marks on people's bodies like the color of my skin, the texture of my hair, the shape of the bones in my face. These are marks on my body that people can see and I can't easily disguise or change them. And that have significance that people impute significance to. That's what we're talking about when we talk about race. And I, I go on from there to develop different ideas, you know, uh, but in every, every step along the way, I want uh, to be uh, able to say with some precision exactly what it is that I'm talking about. Yeah. And this, if I may say so, is a discipline that unfortunately is not adhered to so much by many people commenting about race and racial inequality in America today. That's why I think this conversation can be particularly helpful, not only to me, and uh, but, but to those who will be watching the program and uh, benefiting by it. Uh, as you begin the book, you said you you know presented lectures at Harvard, then put on a, 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 an introduction and a conclusion. But in the introduction, you uh, give us an advanced word about three axioms uh, that you set forward. The first is constructivism, and the second is anti-essentialism, and the third is ingrained racial stigma. And, uh, you know, that made a great deal of sense to me. Uh, again, I, I just invite you to kind of explain those three axioms, because even as they were rooted in conversation then, they're very much rooted in conversation now. Well, again, I welcome the opportunity. Um, basically, I was saying, here's some stuff that I'm going to assume for this argument, but I'm not going to try to demonstrate it independently. I mean, these are the principles or the guidelines that uh, will shape the argument. Constructivism is a claim about, well, what is race? And I'm saying race uh, is a social social uh, phenomenon. Not a, I'm not talking about biological race. I'm not right. talking about people's genes. I'm, I'm talking about the uh, categories black and white in the United States, which obviously have a historical and a uh, political and a social uh, you know, history. They didn't come from nowhere. And they don't mean the same thing in Brazil, uh, where they also are light-skinned and dark-skinned people. And they don't mean the same thing in South Africa where there are also light-skinned and dark-skinned people. All of these societies mm -hmm. have come to understand race, that is to say, have come to associate certain uh, uh, connotations or certain uh, significances with certain categorical marks on the body in different ways. So mm -hmm. constructivism is being clear that I'm talking about the uh, social phenomenon of race, not the biological phenomenon. Yeah. Um, Anti-essentialism is a related notion. And I'm saying, okay, there's inequality between these racial groups. And one way to account for it would just be to say that they are different, that they are, some people came from Africa, some people came from Northern Europe, some people came from Northeast Asia. These populations are essentially different, different in their genetic makeup in ways that bear on social outcomes. And while that could be true, okay, as a scientific claim, it's a scientific claim, for the sake of my argument, I was assuming that it was not true. And I've been criticized for making that assumption by some, you know, developmental and um, uh, 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 psychologists who study uh, the heritability of human intelligence because they want to question whether or not the claim is true. I'm not addressing the, uh, the biology of race. I'm saying for the sake of my argument, I'm going to try to explain racial inequality without reference to essential disparity. And finally, uh, the ingrained stigma uh, axiom, also I received some pushback, says the following. It says, here we are in America, we're talking about Blacks. I made clear in my introduction that I'd be talking about Blacks. Um, so 
what is the history relevant to my concern about inequality that's most salient for Blacks in America? It's slavery. What was slavery? Here I quote the sociologist Orlando Patterson of Harvard. His book, Slavery and Social Death, was published almost 40 years ago. It's a masterful uh, compendium uh, analyzing the institution of slavery over three millennia going back to antiquity and coming forward to the 19th century American experience. And Patterson defines slavery as the permanent violent domination of natally alienated and generally dishonored persons. Now, permanent violent domination, we see right away, the natal alienation is that the slave status carries forward to the uh, offspring of the slave. So the slave and the offspring are separated by the ownership claims of the master. And uh, general dishonor is the most important part of his definition of slavery. <clears throat> the slave is not a full, equal person in the society. He's a generally dishonored person. Slaves could be very proficient at their skill. They might even accumulate wealth in some societies, in some instances, uh, through their functionary uh, roles that they might play. They might rise to great influence within the, uh, within the royal uh, household uh, and so forth, but they could never be king. They, they could never take an honored place in society. This is Patterson. So what I'm saying is, in the case of the United States of America, in the early uh, uh, decades, uh, mostly, I suppose, in the 18th century, as chattel slavery <coughs> was coming into existence, <coughs> plantation slavery and so forth, here we have the United States of America. We have the founding of uh, our republic. We have the Enlightenment ideals reflected in the Declaration of Independence and in the Bill of Rights to the Constitution, affirming certain notions about the worth of the individual person. And yet we also have chattel slavery going on at the same time. Excuse me. Sure. <clears throat> and that's a problem. That's a problem that we only are able to reconcile. And when I say we, I talk about the American establishment at the time of the founding of the country. Only able to reconcile that by, in effect, seeing in the Negro, in the slave, someone who was less than fully, fully human. Otherwise, the idea that all men are created equal and the idea that there's an ongoing traffic in chattel uh, could not be mutually consistent. Now, of course, we eventually, in the fullness of time, uh, came to see things in a very different light. But, and again, when I say we, I talk about the sensibility of the, of the leadership, intellectual, and political classes of the country uh, begin with racial stigma, the blackness having a connotation of negativity, <clears throat> of social unfitness, of uh, lack of civility, of lack of, of uh, uh, intelligence and so forth that uh, carries with uh, the African-American even after the emancipation. Sorry to take so long to say that, but thank no, you. No, that was uh, that. That's helpful. When I when I read that introductory section of your book and then followed through the book, which again goes back to your lectures of two thousand, I uh, I felt like it was as current as if you had uh, written it since uh, <laughs> since earlier this year. Uh, but you have uh, written and said a great deal since the first of this year. I want to turn later to the issue of the uh, controversy at at uh, Brown University, but. Uh, I want to go to a, a very important essay uh, that was published by the Manhattan Institute. Uh, there, uh, it was just a conservative think tank that uh, I've appreciated for a very long time. 
And back in May of 2019, so before the most immediate controversies hit in the United States, but frankly, they're, they're all already here in, in 2019 when you said this um, and, and wrote this work. Um, it, the title of it is, Why Does Racial Inequality Persist? Culture, Causation, and Responsibility. I have to tell you, Professor Lowry, I, I find it to be one of the most clarifying and uh, frankly, courageous uh, uh, arguments made in, the, in light of uh, the contemporary headlines. Uh, I just want to ask you to kind of walk us through this, because you, you, you talk about um, two causal narratives about the persistence of racial inequality. And we're talking about the United States. One is the bias narrative, and the other is the development narrative. Now, yeah. in sociology, this has kind of been the argument between the culturalist and the structuralist. But I like the way you describe it, th those two narratives. Please, please explain how they work. Again, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity because this is so important in my mind. So we know the bias narrative is very familiar. We see it in the newspaper and on television every day. Uh, the bias narrative is that America is a fundamentally racist society. White supremacy is an ideology that infects institutions from the Ivy League to uh, the US military to corporate America. Uh, et cetera, um, and uh, that it's because of African-Americans being treated unfairly in the normal intercourse of social uh, conduct that the disparities persist. It's bias, it's racism, it's discrimination, it's exclusion, it's marginalization. There's a million different ways of saying it. Now we're talking about a population that descends from people who were slaves. And we're talking about a country where for 100 years after the uh, emancipation of these slaves, uh, they and their descendants were not granted the rights of full citizenship, of voting rights, and of being treated fairly in ordinary uh, uh, commerce and public affairs. <clears throat> so it's not as if people are completely crazy to talk about bias. But we're talking about also a country that now we're a half century past the civil rights movement, a country that, uh, well, you know, freed the slaves uh, that in the fullness of time amended its constitution, amended its law and its cultural practice to try to create something approximating equality of opportunity. And that now is uh, an, uh, a place where uh, a Black Lives Matter movement can spring up, where anti-racism can uh, uh, take uh, uh, hold in the uh, minds of the consciousnesses of all the progressive people uh, across the land, uh, and where something like a, a a fair opportunity or something approximating equality of opportunity could be argued to have been obtained. So the bias narrative, in my mind, doesn't explain what we're looking at. It doesn't explain uh, the educational gap, the test score gap, uh, the uh, low levels of reading and math proficiency of youngsters in, who are African-American in this country. It doesn't explain uh, seven in 10 kids born to a black woman being born to a woman without a husband. It doesn't explain a homicide rate that's off the charts. It does not explain, notwithstanding the best efforts of some people to say so, the uh, overrepresentation of African Americans amongst those who are incarcerated. In my opinion, bias doesn't explain that. Well, what does explain it? I think black people in America and anywhere else are just as capable of accomplishment as any other people. I think their human potential is no less. But I think human potential must be actually realized through processes of development. Children have to be raised and they have to be educated. 
young people have to learn how to control their impulses and how to uh, 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 tailor their behaviors uh, to adopt the disciplines, uh, to uh, acquire the skills and habits and traits that allow them to be successful in society. That's development. Now, uh, so I juxtapose to the bias narrative, this alternative way of looking at things. It's not mutually exclusive, but it's a very different outlook. That's an outlook on development. So if I see uh, a lot of uh, idle kids standing on a corner, some of them getting into the trouble with law. If I see kids flunking out of school, not getting their high school diplomas or not being able to read and write effectively so as to be able to get a job, um, if I see a lot of encounters with police officers that end up going bad because people are engaged in activities they shouldn't be engaged in or they are behaving in ways that cause the police to draw attention to them in the first place, and I see a racial disparity in that, I'm asking myself, what went on in the childhood? What kind of school did the kid go to? What was the nature of the social capital that influenced the developmental dynamic that we see reflected in that kid's behavior? And when African-American youngsters are deprived of the opportunity to develop their potential as human beings, we will see racial inequality. The reason that I make the distinction, and thank you for giving me time to say this, is that what you want to do about the problem is completely different depending upon whether you think it's right. bias or development that's going on. And I want to be clear, this is not about assigning fault. This is not about blaming the victim. It's not about pointing a finger. It's not about judgment. It's about being clear as to what's actually happening in the society. If I have a development problem and I call it a bias problem, I don't address my attention to the points that have to be, the places that have to be uh, intervened uh, with and the, the processes that have to be changed in order to solve the problem. You right. can call white people responsible for black people's uh, uh, poor condition if you want to, but unless you actually address the condition, you will not have made any progress. You know, when you look at those two narratives, and you, you've intellectually been very honest to say that first narrative you mentioned, the bias narrative, it has a basis in history. No one can deny that. It has a basis in not only slavery and Jim Crow segregation, but all kinds of institutional, structural laws and policies. Continuing to some extent, even to this day, excuse me for interrupting. No, that, I mean, and, and I think we have to, we have to acknowledge that there has we're not in the position we were in 1789 we're not in the position we were in 1866 we're not in the position we were in 1966 Correct. and so you know holding these two these two narratives together um you know i i've been working on these issues for a very long time from a very different place and as a christian theologian uh one of the issues that has become more and more apparent to me committed to human dignity and human flourishing is that this developmental narrative you talk about is, uh, is understandable in Christian theological terms, for example, in the Christian category of subsidiarity, uh, which, uh, you know, is, is basically the principle that says that truth, flourishing, beauty, goodness, what you would call social capital, uh, they, are the, they are the most efficient and the most real in the smallest unit of, of society. They subside there. And then based upon, say, so for instance, the, uh, the, the social power, and, and as a theologian, I'm going to say God's purpose for marriage, uh, that, that you know, marriage then becomes the, 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 first, the first social context of adding social capital, to use your category. 
And then that's expanded to the family and, and, and then to the kinship structure and then to community. And then so you, you go on and on and on out. And eventually, in a highly rationalized, developed society like the United States, you've got state government, federal government, and, and, and all the rest. But the point is that if there is a, if there is a deficiency, if there's a break, if there's an absence at the lowest, most fundamental level, then no subsequent level can fully correct it no matter how intentional it is, no matter how much money it, it, it spends. Not to say that it doesn't have a role. You know, if there's a hungry child right now, I want yeah. a federal bureaucrat to feed that child. Uh, it just is yeah. far less likely that's going to happen efficiently in a way that leads to human flourishing if there isn't marriage and family in the beginning. So th there seems to me to be a real theological uh, analogy to the point you're making here. Will you allow me a comment on that? Please. Uh, I know about subsidiarity from uh, 40 years ago, reading a little book by the late uh, Father Richard John Newhouse, the theologian, right. and uh, Peter Berger, the uh, sociologist. Mm -hmm. uh, to empower people, if I'm not mistaken, was the title of this little pamphlet put out That's from right. the American Enterprise Institute. And uh, the argument, they call it mediating structures. They call it right. media, you know, between the individual and the state, you know, various right. associations and connectivity. Um, and this point that there's some things that can be done at a lower level of connection, of, of a lower level mm -hmm. than at this massive bureaucratic, impersonal, uh, legalistic, uh, structural intervention uh, is, is, I think, exactly right. And it's so very... Uh, very important. I mean, there is really no substitute for the family, is there? No. I, I'm talking about raising kids. I mean, right. you can do it, but a loving mother and father supporting and nurturing and mm -hmm. modeling and, and, and furthering the development of that, of that human being, I mean, we that's a pretty good way of doing it. Uh, so, uh, yeah. you know, and when I look at the state of the Black American family, regrettably, and it's not very popular to say this because people think you're wagging your face, your finger in their faces. But I just want to say, uh, if you're going to talk about racial inequality, you have to be talking about that, amongst other things. Right. You must be talking about that because that's where a lot of the action is. Well, it's very sensitive, of course. I'm a white Protestant theologian speaking about these things. Uh, but I'm committed to human flourishing. I'm committed to trying to achieve the best results for everyone in the society around me because I am a Christian. But that leads me to, to a very difficult posture in this situation in which I want to say, I don't believe it's ever possible to remediate uh, what's lost if marriage and family and kinship and community are not intact. And that means, uh, to use your, your narrative of how social capital is gained, you know, deeply invested in social moral purposes, such as the raising of children and uh, the investment in those children. And as you say, you know, leading those children to uh, harness their, uh, their impulses and also gain cognitive skills and social and emotional skills uh, to be functional sure. in society. And then, you know, to promote, to, to promote children and reward them in this and discipline them, you know, as the Bible would say, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Um, but he, here's, the, here's the posture that I'm in, and I, I consider it a privilege to talk to you about this and to think it through together. So I do have to make moral judgments as a theologian, that's, that's what I do, but they're moral judgments not made in moral indignation, but rather in moral concern. So the bottom line is this, I don't think there can be any alleviation of that basic pattern of inequality 
until there is a uh, a return to a culture in which children are born to married couples who stay married and invest their energies in those children. And that that's the reward system of the entire community. Now, when I say that, I just, it, again, I'm accused of blaming the victim as well. And I want to say, look, there are victims. There really are, because I mean, there are children who are born into this situation. They, they haven't decided that. And, and there are people who, for other reasons, they may never have seen an example of a fully thriving, you know, community in that way. There, there are, there are other issues. But uh, that, that's the brokenheartedness of the perplexity of the white Christian uh, evangelical, you know, conservative Christian trying to think these things through now. Well, I, I know what's going to be said from our postmodern friends and colleagues, you know, around the country. They're going to say uh, there is no pushing on the string. You cannot reweave the fabric by pushing on the string. The unraveling is well advanced. Modernity is upon us. There's no going back. They're going to say, and with great respect, Dr. Moeller, that yeah. your Christian uh, willful hopefulness is not going to put a genie back in the bottle again. I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. This is the 21st century, not 1950s and so on. Mm -hmm. uh, the women are uh, liberated. The gays are out of the closet. The transgender are on the march. Um, and uh, sorry, fella. Uh, so we had better deal with the real world, they're going to say, the world that we're yeah. in. Uh, yeah. And that's a world in which these uh, these institutions, you know, uh, have have uh, have been lost. And, they, and they're also going to say, <laughs> excuse me, but I'll just put this on the table. Sure. That liberty, liberation, freedom. Uh, the, as I say, the gays are out of the closet. As I say, the women are out of untethered from the kitchen. Um, the uh, the ways of life don't have to only be what has been taught to us by our traditional inheritance. They're not conservatives, Dr. Moeller. <laughs> yeah, I, I get it. And, and I, I, I understand the world. C, the yeah. literal sense yeah. of the word. Yeah. They, they're, they're iconoclasts. They want yeah. a new world. Yeah, no, and, and they're, they're making it. And, uh, and that's how I began by saying, I realize that our social capital is decreasing and theirs is increasing. I mean, I, folks who believe like I believe aren't going to get tenure in, at uh, Brown University. <laughs> Uh, and they're not making very many movies or TV shows either. No. But the, here's the issue in which I find myself, and again, when you're talking to a postmodernist, this is something that, you know, or someone from standpoint epistemology or anything, they just don't get this. But look, I don't, I don't believe these things are true because I believe them. I believe them because I believe they're true. So independent of Albert Moeller or Glenn Lowry or anyone else, I still think this is the way the world's going to work. And so... You know, you can, you're making your brave new world, but you know, one of the chief apologetic questions I ask people is, how's it working out for you? Um, you know, I, I understand the, the, the human autonomy, the liberation motif and, and all that, but you know, it's not producing people who can replicate themselves in a society. So, you know, you mentioned uh, uh, Peter Berger and Richard John Newhouse. Uh, Newhouse, doc, uh, Dr. Newhouse was a, a friend and, uh, I participated with him in some projects, and uh, and Peter Berger's a major influence uh, on me. But I, I want to go back to the founder of sociology at Harvard, Pitarim Sorokin, uh, who made the argument that, you know, the, the, the question is, okay, so you've got your brand new society, and he was approaching, he was addressing this primarily to the Bolshevik Revolution, where he was almost a victim. Uh, but his point was, yeah, well, how are you replicating this? You know, how, how are you having babies? 
how how are you how are you producing a next generation? And of course, you know, it it's not going to be a, a, a thriving project. And it's I'll state that it's not it's not going to work. Yeah. Uh, I sigh because um, I, my son, Glenn II, is a gay man. Uh, he's in a long-term relationship with his partner. Um, and we have this conversation, uh, and it's it's always uh, sensitive. We, we are in a loving relationship, father and son. He's, mm-hmm. he's a wonderful, wonderful human being. I thank God for him. Uh, and he's a writer and a bank uh, uh, official and... Uh, uh, you know, uh, he's a great guy, uh, but uh, I can hear him. Not everybody has to have kids, Dad. I mean, there are enough people having kids. Can you, you know, can I just be free to live my life? Freedom. Uh, I'm not making policy for the world. I'm just trying to be happy in my life. Uh, and it's hard, man. I mean, you, you know, uh, what are you going to say? Uh, you're going to say, go forward and be happy. I think if that's your kid. Well, and I understand what you're saying, but the, the question is, are or at the least conditions I'm going to say of, that I shouldn't have put that in the second person. Well, no, and I, I understand it. And look, there are a lot of Christian families struggling with the same issue, but I just, I just want to say, I think, I think we have to say, I have to say, I also want your happiness, but I don't think the conditions that you stipulate are actually going to produce happiness. I can't, you know, I, I can't legally or culturally prevent X or Y from happening or you from doing this, but I can just tell you, at least from my perspective, I at least owe you to tell you that, uh, and I'm, I'm a Christian, that God has a better plan. And he makes that very clear. And, you know, denying that plan can't lead to happiness. It might actually, you know, you might die speaking to anyone in, in this situation, regardless of whether it's LGBTQ or radical second wave feminism or just about anything. Uh, you know, you may actually die thinking you're happy, but you're not producing the conditions of happiness for those who will follow you. And uh, th- th- this is tough stuff to talk about these days. But it I is. appreciate you know, I, your- my son, I just want to say this mm-hmm. uh, because he was raised in the Bethel African Methodist Episcopal Church in uh, mm-hmm. Mattapan, the neighborhood in Boston, Massachusetts. And those are good people. Those are good Bible-believing Christian people that would have given exactly the same comment or speech that you just gave mm-hmm. right now. Yeah. And my son Glenn is mad at him because, you know, they make the speech that you just made. And I'm saying, come on, man, you got to meet them halfway. They're good people. I mean, you know, let's mm-hmm. let's try to work through this together. If, you know, if, if, <laughs> if you reject those people, man, believe me, the people coming behind them are much less friendly to your flourishing. Right. <laughs> you know? Yeah, anyway, I, and I to make to that, that to make that point, you know, I have many in the national media, you know, who, who say to me, you know, the Christian right is scary, and I want to say, well, wait till you meet the non-Christian right. <laughs> uh, yeah, you're you're going to be asking me back. Uh, yeah, I think there's a lot of wisdom yeah. in that. <laughs> you know, uh, the current context, and and all this is is there. I want to commend people. We'll put a, a link in the program to your uh, your essay. Why does racial inequality persist? But but before yeah. I turn to the situation at Brown, I just want to ask you. You make the the so what or the what then argument uh, both in the beginning and the end. For instance, you say uh, that uh, if you take the bias narrative, let's say that. Everyone in the country buys into the bias narrative. You ask the question, then what? Then will it be safe to walk on the south side of Chicago after midnight? Okay, that's, I think, very fair and brave. 
But then let, let me say, let's, let's take the development narrative. Okay, I just want to ask you, Glenn Lowry, then what? Now what? Well, that's a fair point, and I don't have a formula. I can't be sure that a focus on development could solve the problem of walking safely on the south side of Chicago, because there's a lot of kids out there who have not been well-developed, and there are a lot of guns mm -hmm. out there, and there are gangs, and there's drugs, and it's a, it's, it's a very, very tough situation. But here's what I want to say. Let's just start with basics. Babies are being gunned down in the street. This is barbarity as far as behavior is concerned, and it must be condemned. But this is also pathos. This is loss. This is pain. This is suffering. This is agony. Uh, uh, th this is a tragedy. And we must, and I'll put it in Christian terms, minister to these people. We, right. we must be present as witnesses to this tragedy. We must speak for what we know to be virtuous and right. We must hold up a banner here. Right. Can I guarantee you that that kind of witness will solve the problem? No, I cannot. I cannot promise you that homicides will go down if half as many or a third or a tenth as many who were looting stores on North Michigan Avenue in Chicago were instead lining up and down the streets demanding that the perpetrators of these horrific crimes uh, be apprehended and brought to justice. I assure you, uh, and we know this from the way that the country reacts to mass shootings when there's a school shooting and the kids, and they're most often white kids, I'm sorry to have to report, and it's a tragedy and our heart goes out to these people. Well, there are black kids and numerous, I mean, many, many more who are being not in one room at one time uh, who are losing their lives. This is a horrible, horrible thing. So I must tell you, um, and this is a partisan comment, I hold it against Black Lives Matter that they neglect this. They want to talk about cops. Okay, let's talk about cops. We can talk about cops. But believe me, 10 times, 50 times as many Black people are losing their lives at the hands of criminals, thugs, people, murderous gangs, settling disputes by firing their weapons into crowds, killing babies, okay? These are Black people. This is a reality of certain black communities. So I'm trying to answer your question. You say, what would the development narrative do? What would the subsidiary response, subsidiarity uh, imply about this? It would mean witness. It would mean voice. It would mean uh, prophetic uh, condemnation, a call to a higher ground. It would mean organization of uh, interventions. I mean, uh, when I was more active in my church back in Boston, when my kids were young, uh, I can remember some of the pastors uh, in Boston. Uh, Ray Hammond was one of them. Uh, Eugene Rivers was another one of them. Bruce Wall was. They all ran congregations around the city. And they would go out at 1 o'clock in the morning, and they would stand and pray on street corners where they knew the gangbangers were hanging out. And they would have these, they would go to the funerals, and they would have these kids in their, uh, you know, coming to relationship with Jesus in their co congregations and then leading youth ministries and blah, blah, blah. You can't tell me that there's nothing that can be done. Would it solve the problem? No, I'm, I can't guarantee that it would solve the problem. But one thing it would do, it would be to affirm the dignity of our community, yes. uh, the, 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 <laughs> the human dignity of our community. So that's the kind of thing that my development orientation would call for. Yeah, development orientation in this sense is just as moral, and I would argue actually driven by a more profound moral impulse even than the bias narrative. Because the bias narrative, the immorality of slavery, the immorality of uh, segregation and uh, race-based discrimination, 
you know, uh, frankly, anyone who's not going to argue for the immorality of race-based chattel slavery in the United States doesn't deserve to be a part of the conversation. But once you make that agreement, the, the moral issue is then what's now causing inequality? Where's the brokenness now? And how can we actually resolve it? And uh, but that leads me to say that for white Christians, white conservative Christians in the United States and for the, you know, the, the evangelical movement, a part of what we have to recognize is that uh, also driven by biblical concerns, we want to address that the, the, what's necessary for human development to take place. Uh, in the present and the future, as well as in the past. But that also means we got to deal with people who right now are inheriting brokenness. And we need to do everything actually to help as much as we can the people who are actually right now, uh, you know, trying to raise boys without a father in the home, who are trying to create order out of disorder in a neighborhood or in a community, or trying to pull together as much of a family and kinship structure as possible. And that's why I think we have so many uh, African-American churches in particular who do a just remarkable work uh, doing that in their communities. And uh, I'm, I'm in awe in many times of watching uh, what these churches are doing. And uh, I, yes, sir. I want to be a part of doing what's right, uh, not just saying what's wrong. I got to give voice to this. Uh, you know, I run a podcast and one of the things I do is I always try to argue the other side, even the other mm -hmm. side from what I actually believe. Uh, here's what they're going to say, Dr. Moeller. They're going to say, yeah. okay, that's fine. That's fine. But I tell you what, uh, here's what the po politics can do. It can tax, it can, it can create programs, it can allocate resources. So what about healthcare? They're going to say, okay. What about housing? They're going to say, what about money for education? We need more money for the schools. Those are the things that the public conversation should be yeah. focused on because those are the things that are amenable to remedy through uh, political action. That's why it's important to have, and then you know there's gonna be a program and Bernie Sanders or Joe yeah. Biden or somebody is gonna embody that program. And so you're gonna have a political argument. And they're gonna say, what you're talking about is not really politics. What you're talking about is something for the private sector, for volunteerism, yep. for charity or yep. uh, whatever. So let's just be clear what we're talking about. Keep your church talking to church. And uh, when we're going to the voting booth, we'll figure out how to spend the money. Well, I don't think it's accidental that uh, many of the uh, people who are dealing with these questions, I think most productively, are actually economists. I would say you and... Uh, Thomas Sowell, for instance, uh, uh, who I credit with a lot of influence in my thinking. Uh, so, so I, mean, I mentioned in the beginning of the conversation your notion of social capital, but behind that is the notion of capital. And so, you yeah. know, I, again, in my response to that as a political argument or to Bernie or to <laughs> Joe Biden is, you know, you're writing checks. You're not going to be able to cash. Uh, in other words, the, the, the conditions that produce the wealth or the capital that would actually pay for what you're talking about, you're undermining by doing that. So you're going to get the immediate thrill of announcing a big program. But number one, if you don't fix what's more fundamental, it's not going to work. And number two, you're going to run out of the money. Uh, okay. And so then what? Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Thomas Sowell. He's a great man. He's 90 years old or so. Mm -hmm. Uh, God love him. And uh, he just deserves to be respected as a great man. You know, Absolutely. some of us are trying to uh, get the White House to uh, consider him for the Presidential Medal of Freedom. And I, yeah. uh, I think it's a very good thing. Uh, but you're right. I mean, I am an I economist. Do. And when I put the green eye shade on, you know, I'm looking at the 1960s and 70s mm -hmm. expansion of the welfare state, the great society and whatnot. 
uh, model cities and uh, all of this, uh, you know, job training and, you know, whatever, whatever. And uh, what do we got to show for it? You know, we had a war on poverty and as the joke goes, poverty won. Not quite. I'm not going to say the Great Society was nothing. I'm not going to say Medicaid. Uh, you want to get rid right. of Medicaid or uh, whatever. I'm not, you know, not, not going to go nothing. quite that yeah. far. But I, I do think there's a point about incentives, about how markets work, about the, you know, mm -hmm. the Laffer curve. You can raise the tax rate all you want to, but after a while, it's going to stop working. Uh, about, you know, you can teach a person to fish or you can just make sure they get a check every month. I mean, these are these are things that are true. And I think the history of our social policy uh, shows that uh, there are diminishing returns rapidly setting in uh, to throwing money at problems and thinking you're going to solve them. No, I don't understand why it's politically successful, uh, you know, as a as a policy. But, uh, you know, even looking at the war on poverty, uh, the, the, the blunt statistics demonstrate that uh, poverty was actually a more pressing problem. 20 years after the war on poverty than it was before. Now, the, the, in terms of causality, and all kinds of, all kinds of these went into it. But again, I have to go back to the development narrative that you, you demonstrate and say, well, but the problem is, is that what actually would have produced tremendous wealth and capital, intact families, intact communities, ordered societies, low crime rate and all that. Uh, without that, it turned out that poverty was more expensive than the war on poverty could uh, could could address. I want poverty to be pushed back. I want human flourishing uh, to happen. But uh, and by the way, I appreciate what you said about Thomas Sowell. His book, The Conflict of Visions, is I think one of the most important books in conservative history, uh, just in terms of setting out the issues. Not to mention the the incredible work he's done in social theory and economics, and also just an incredibly courageous man who believes in liberty. But uh, uh, Professor Lowry, I'd like to shift uh, the conversation. To ask yeah. you, how's it going for you at Brown University? Well, when I I, I decided I'm going to launch a, a Patreon account uh, yes. and ask people if they like my podcast and they would like to support my work, they can go ahead and make a contribution, <laughs> just as an insurance policy. <laughs> no, I, I'm I'm kind of kidding. I am yeah. launching the account. Stay tuned. If you follow my podcast, that's the Glenn Show. Uh, which you can find on YouTube, then uh, you'll hear about it uh, in due course. And uh, thanks for the allowing me to, to get that commercial in. Uh, they're not about to fire me at Brown. I have tenure. I'm well paid. I'm respected by my colleagues. They know that I'm a distinguished member of the faculty. They appreciate that I'm having an impact, uh, which at the end of the day is good for the university on the national conversation about important questions. So I don't want to overstate the case. Yeah. Now, now, having said that, um, I'm the odd man out in almost every faculty meeting about almost any issue. Yeah. <laughs> when it comes to so. equity, yeah. diversion, uh, diversity, and inclusion, I'm saying don't lower the standards for the black applicants. Hold them to the same standard and help us meet the standard. Don't worry about the short-term number. Don't be trying to get to 10% or 12% overnight if there's a pipeline shortage and whatnot. Let's take the longer view. Um, and uh, when it comes to the curriculum, I'm the one who's saying, let's read the classics, believe it or not. I'm, that, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying, let, let's, you know, dead white men. No, no, they're just good books. Let's just read the game. You got some good books written by some folks who are not dead or are not white or are not male. I'm prepared to read them too. Let's just right. read the books. Uh, <laughs> and, and on and on and on. Uh, and I will find myself to be a relatively lonely voice. 
So uh, when the president of my university sent around a letter after uh, George Floyd's death at the hands of a, apparently at the hands of a police officer in Minneapolis a few months ago, and she sent around a letter and it was like a manifesto written by Black Lives Matter and it had every officer of the university signature on it and she put it forward as we, as us. And I thought, oh my God, you know, we're a university and here is, here are, uh, here's groupthink uh, being enshrined by the official hierarchy of the university. And we're all supposed to think the same thing here. And even if 99% of us think it, that's not the way a university should be conducting its affairs. The universities don't have positions on the New Deal. Universities don't have positions on the Iraq War. Universities don't have position, in my opinion, on um, Biden versus Trump. Universities uh, cultivate and protect the great treasure of the historically accumulated learning and wisdom of, the, of humankind, and they try to propagate it to the next generation. That's what universities do. And if you're going to speak to political issues, don't speak as a partisan. Speak in the analytical registers. Talk in terms of what the philosophical implications of uh, the great, greatest of the uh, thinking of humankind is for the current uh, circumstance. Don't be a flack. Don't be CNN. You know, this is what I'm saying to my uh, university mm -hmm. president. And, you know, I'm still employed at Brown. Uh, but you know what? No one has come to me and said, a number of people have written privately, and they said, I agree with you, I agree with you, I agree. No one has come to me and said, I hated every word of what you had to say, but I'm sure it's true for, for many of my colleagues. Maybe the decline in my dinner party invitations, this is before COVID. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe the decline well, in my dinner party invitations is an indication that I'm not in good favor with some of my colleagues. But professionally, I'm okay. Well, I, I want to ask you an honest question, and, I, I, and you can answer it. I can't. Uh, and uh, but you've taught at Harvard, Brown, many other leading universities. Um, how possible would it be now for someone who's a young Glenn Lowry to be hired to teach at Brown or Harvard or for that matter, the University of Michigan or anywhere else like that? All right. If this uh, person were, um, uh, you know, uh, an organic chemist with a good publication record in organic chemistry, who has a sideline tweeted or blogged uh, thoughts of the sort that I've given voice to here, I'd say they have like a 30% chance of getting hired. Right. <laughs> but if they were a professor of English, of history, of sociology, mm -hmm. and they were trying to get hired, the, the number would be zero. They would have no chance whatsoever. They would be peremptorily excluded. No one would even bother to consider them because uh, it would just be beyond the pale. It would it'd just be considered uh, unspeakable. So I, I think things do differ as between the STEM fields and the humanities in terms of the severity, uh, but they're having even scientists sign loyalty right. oaths now. Mm -hmm. Even scientists are having to issue statements about their commitments to diversity, which right. is a bizarre, these are loyalty oaths. Uh, it's a bizarre thing to behold. Well, I'm looking at things like uh, these uh, diversity and inclusion evaluations used to faculty in which uh, as a part of the tenure process and then even yeah. post-tenure evaluation, I mean, what they're requiring is, and this is where it gets to all fields. I mean, you, you've got to, you know, uh, I was talking to someone uh, a matter of weeks ago who's in the STEM fields, and I said, how does that work? And he said, well, I've, I've got to try to find sources that are representing ethnic, LGBTQ, or whatever kind of links 
and uh, and put those in my paper or I'm not going to get accepted into the peer reviewed journal in this. And, and I'm just thinking, well, that's, that's an outrage. A, but but isn't that kind of where all this is headed? And uh, yeah, actually, yeah. it is where it's headed. Um, and it is a. <sighs> It's a threat to our civilization. Mm -hmm. It is a debasement mm -hmm. of the currency. Uh, it, it undermines standards of uh, scientific judgment. You're going to cite somebody because of the color of their skin or the way their genitalia fall or uh, what their preferences are? You're going to mm -hmm. cite, not based upon the scientific probity of the contribution, but in order to have a representative set of citations. And why are you doing this? Because people can't get tenure without having articles published that get a lot of citations. So people are writing papers and now they're not getting enough citations and they're black. And so you got to get them more citations by encouraging scholars to cite them, not for the content of the paper, but for the color of the author. That's, that's the road to intellectual serfdom. Uh, I perhaps yeah. overstated, but I assure you only slightly. No, I asked the question because I, I sense this that way. And I have conversation with uh, conservative professor, not not only conservative, but but uh, conservative professors in elite institutions. And they often point to themselves as examples that conservatives can indeed teach in those institutions. But my question is always, well, could a you you be hired now? And, and, you know, what's being required in so many of these search processes and other things is a positive confession of agreement on many issues that are outside the field for that matter uh before there's any uh you know continuation of this and uh and especially in fields as you mentioned like uh, english or history but uh with uh with some exceptions i mean law is increasingly headed the same direction i, I have to wonder about economics i just have to ask you well, I'd like to think that, but I think I'd be foolish to ignore the possibility of it. I mean, economics is distinctive in that um, we're a, a pretty analytical uh, discipline. Uh, we're kind of anchored in the methods of inquiry uh, that are uh, very, very statistical mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, really uh, require a, a kind of focus in, in the research that is uh, not not at all polemical, political. It doesn't lend itself to uh, to kind of an ideological expression. People want to get to the bottom line. They want to see the equations. They want the graphs and the tables. Uh, they want to know the standard error on your estimate. They want to see your model, this kind of thing. That's what goes into the journals. So I, I, I think economics uh, should be pretty hard for the postmodern relativist to conquer. But, you know, how to put it, the barbarians are at the gates. I mean, that's, that's an right. unkind way of saying it, but it's but it's a, it's the way I tend to look at it. I mean, I see uh, the, the camel's nose under the tent or whatever the right metaphor is here of uh, modern uh, concerns, especially about diversity, equity, and inclusion creeping into the profession. Um, an editor of a major journal, the Journal of Political Economy, a guy who's a professor at the University of Chicago has been in effect canceled because uh, people have gone after him for being a racist based on a tweet. He tweeted something about Black Lives Matter. Uh, people got mad at him. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of concern about the underrepresented minorities and about the place of women in the profession, which is causing committees to be formed, mm -hmm. statements to be issued, uh, and so on. 
so I'd be foolish to ignore the possibility that, uh, that economics could be affected, but I think relative to history, uh, sociology, English departments, and so on, economics is, is still uh, pretty much uh, uh, unaffected by, by this uh, development. Well, as you say, the barbarians are at the gate, or another way to put it is that uh, the long march through the institutions is already well underway. And uh, I don't think they're going to stop uh, at the door of the economics department, you know, any more than uh, they did at theology. And, and so uh, we're all in this, uh, this great battle. And as you say, it's a civilizational battle together. Uh, you're a man of rare courage and insight. And uh, Professor Lowry, I just want to thank you again for joining with me today for Thinking in Public. Thank you very much, Dr. Moeller. It's been my pleasure to be with you. That was a conversation worth having. And as I said, many of these issues right now are on the headlines of the United States. But behind the headlines are people. And behind the headlines are ideas. Understanding those ideas and the clash of those ideas, the worldview implications of what's taking place in the headlines, and for that matter, right now on the streets. The future of higher education in America, what's happening, even as Professor Lowry said, the barbarians are at the gates. A lot for us to think about. And I really appreciate the conversation. And thanks again to my guest, Glenn Lowry, for thinking with me today. If you enjoyed today's episode of Thinking in Public, you'll find more than 100 of these conversations at albertmuller.com under the tab Thinking in Public. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, just go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Muller.